to the Carrero Podcast. I'm Malia Hoffman, and I'm with Fred Ramirez, and today we have a guest, Nick Pattison. Nick Pattison is originally from Vancouver, Canada, and is a STEM learning designer at Ormiston Junior College. He is pushing boundaries of what modern New Zealand education looks like. He's leading projects with large companies like Fletcher, Fonterra, and Iwi towards community outcomes such as building an IoT system to track construction equipment, monitoring bee population health, converting plastic waste into 3D printing filament, and all while making it fun and engaging for students, scientists, and the community. He believes that following students' passions can lead to authentic experiences that make the community a better place and has been collaborating with international like-minded schools in the USA, Brazil, and Australia to demonstrate the benefits of this type of learning can have towards achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. All right, Nick, thank you so much for being here. So excited to have you uh, as a guest on our podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're born and raised, and how you got interested in education? Awesome. Yeah, no, to start off with, thank you for this opportunity. We're really, really excited to share some of the stuff that we're doing uh, at Ormiston Junior College right now. Uh, so my name is Nick Patterson. I'm a learning designer, which is the term that we would use for a teacher here in New Zealand. Uh, and I've been in New Zealand for about 10 years now. I'm starting to uh, end my journey in New Zealand and I will probably be moving to um, Australia at the end of this year, um, which ends in December, the school year. But uh, originally from Vancouver, Canada, um, I never thought I'd be a teacher. I think I always originally thought I'd be a baseball player. Uh, I was very fortunate after high school to um, spend a couple of years at uh, New Mexico Junior College, a tiny, tiny um, little school in Hobbs, and uh, another school in Texas. And then from there, um, as my baseball career uh, came to an end, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did um, uh, children's day camps for a while, and I really enjoyed that. Um, during the summer while doing other jobs and that um, piqued the interest of is this something I could do uh, long term and, and from there uh, I explored becoming a teacher initially a PE teacher um, so I finished my degree from University of Alberta with a specialist in um, physical education uh, and when I came to New Zealand uh, I started working in intermediate so I had originally trained for primary so a little bit older uh, and I realized that you know I was kind of longing to go back to primary in that role and there wasn't a PE role there so I actually took a science specialist role uh, I'm not a real sciencey type of uh, person at that point and still really not although I'm super curious those are the uh, perfect that, types of science teachers though the non-sciencey ones I think so I, <laughs> I think so. Uh, upon a lot of reflection, so as I kind of elaborate on my role, I have a very unique role uh, and I've been fortunate for a variety of reasons, but I do think one of them is that I'm not an expert. So I deal across a lot of technologies, some, some you know, basically the, the most cutting edge technologies um, there is. Uh, and my lack of you know, a very specific understanding allows me to be mentally flexible, I think, and to not hold any huge bias because, you know, I don't really fully grasp uh, into depth how a lot of it works. Um, and so I, I do think that is, is a really important kind of uh, point. But yeah, so so been in New Zealand for about 10 years. I've been at a variety of different schools. So we would say low, lower socioeconomic is, is decile ranked. So one being the lowest, 10 being the highest, or the 10 is the wealthiest and, and, and one uh, is the lowest socioeconomic. Uh, and I've, I've taught traditionally at the decile ones, which I absolutely love. Um, students were amazing. Uh, they obviously faced uh, different types of challenges. But as I've been able to move around, all different students have different types of challenges. And that's what I'm starting to, to really understand. Um, but over the past six years, I've developed a STEM specialist role. So initially, um, I was given a classroom where I was asked to do projects. Uh, it was essentially um, a challenging all boys class. And, and once we started building, we, our first project uh, was super labor intensive. We, we did um, uh, earth filled tires and we, we did this big structure we stopped about halfway I think it was three meters square <laughs> we're gonna put like a whole shed and we're just like oh it's gonna take forever um, then we finished the rest with wood but we didn't put a, um, a roof on it and we put a beehive in the middle 
and uh, uh, glass actually on the front. So it's one of the, the first major projects I did where it crossed a whole bunch of lines. I needed to know about safety and I had to learn lots about beekeeping, um, but we we're able to do it in the middle of our school, which is hugely um, you know, unique in, in that you could see this beehive within this three meter square structure with glass front. So the little kids could come up and actually touch the glass and you would see it just completely full uh, uh, of bees. So that was really good. Um, this is where I started to learn a little bit about beekeeping. Once again, mm -hmm. I was super curious. I, I'm from the city. Yeah. You know, I've never was an outdoors person, definitely not a beekeeper. <laughs> and then I was starting to understand the processes. Uh, at the same time, I was teaching really simple computer coding with Scratch. But I was able to teach um, five-year-olds all the way up to uh, about 12-year-olds and, and include science within there. So it was really fascinating that I could see the spectrum of uh, learning um, abilities. And it, at this point in my um, my like professional career, uh, I think it, this was an epiphany um, in the fact that I, I still believe that um, seven-year-olds or year two uh, around that age are, you know, pound for pound, uh, the smartest students in a school. And, <laughs> and uh, having to teach very similar things across all the way up to 12, I found the year two is to be um, highly engaged, but um, super creative, um, really could think outside the box, but they could apply knowledge um, extremely strongly at that age. And, and I, I started to ask, I started to ask the question in my head, how, how come a, a student who, you know, is like five years older is not, you know, five years of, of development uh, above and that's why i started to really ask questions around the systems of learning and, and what's going on um, one of the things i did at this point that was really eye-opening as well was i did an informal survey uh for the entire school so i, I clearly explained what a scientist was you know making discoveries and then i differentiated that an engineer was uh you know building um and, and making things from these discoveries and so i asked the entire school um uh, would so you wait, like to be wait, a scientist? Can I interject? So you asked the teachers or you asked the students? Oh, so I, I gave a survey, uh -huh. uh, unknown by management, uh, to all of the students. Okay, cool. So mm -hmm. um, I was starting to wrap my head around what, why were the, the seven-year-olds doing so well? Yeah. And then what was like, going on later on? Mm -hmm. And so I had I didn't really have any theories. And I worked only with Maori and Pacific students. And I'm a Caucasian Canadian, right? So yeah. like culturally, like very different. Um, and in this survey, I asked the students, do you want to be a scientist? Uh, and I think it was like 85% said yes. Do you want to be an engineer? You know, very similar scores. And then the, the follow-up question, so it's only four, was are you smart enough to be uh, a scientist or, or are you smart enough to be an engineer? And I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but let's say, you know, 30% thought they were smart enough so there's this huge disparity between like wow. what um, they wanted to do they thought and that was a really interesting thing and, and that showed that there's the school system but also society is reinforcing mm -hmm. or creating these beliefs that the, the students couldn't um, they weren't able to be successful and then that's where I really developed this passion for STEM specifically, mm -hmm. or STEAM. The acronym means nothing to me. Right. It's really those students doing pro, uh, project-based learning, mm -hmm. um, applying science and technology. Yeah. And so my whole thing was um, these students, regardless of culture, how could you harness all these technologies, you know, all these modern learning pedagogies and spaces so that you had an equitable school system? And, and obviously something was going on there that that wasn't. And so that's really the beginning of my journey where, um, you know, I was very fortunate to participate in a wide spectrum of professional development. And I went out there and I've worked with industry and a variety of different groups and actually been able to experience it. But okay. as it, Nick. Nick, I want to go back uh, because because obviously, I want to break all this down, man. <laughs> there's there's yeah. a lot there's there's a lot here, and and, and for the people that are that are listening, um, one of the one of the really cool things is that I I had a unique opportunity to actually go to this to the school just for just for one day, and I and I witnessed just a bunch of stuff, and it was and it was really cool. Um, but one of the one of the questions that I have as an as an educator here in the in the United States and you were and you were sharing briefly how how you were how you were going to school here. Why yeah. why didn't why didn't you be 
um, become a teacher here? Yeah, so so initially I was going to stay in Canada with my now wife, um, but we wanted to explore for a year, uh, you know, okay. like a hobby. And when we came to New Zealand, um, we absolutely loved New Zealand. And then very quickly, I was able to develop my own program. So here the curriculum is okay. very flexible and you can actually go so a principal can directly hire you and you have the flexibility to create your own programs. So very soon I wasn't um, actually interviewing per se anymore. Uh, I was finding the best situation for myself and exploring with kind of the environment. So um, nice. just like a really good way of the way you said that you're a learning designer. Uh, I like yeah. that as a term yeah, like for that. an educator rather than like, oh, I'm a teacher. Learning designer really does just focus on the needs of that learner and yeah. designing the product and the curriculum around that, which I love. Yeah, because if you if you create just this just this mental picture of of someone who's calling them them themselves that, then you then you really get to see um, how how teachers could really mold and shape learning within every single kid. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were very honored to um, to host you, Fred. And I think um, uh, you, you could support a little bit what I'm saying is uh, as I've developed through my teaching career, and interestingly enough, we we have a lot of visitors come to our school, and so I'm very fortunate to kind of uh, constantly be critiqued and um, reflect upon my teaching and how things have developed, because um, the program has developed to a very a unique spot, and to, to um, pick up where I was before, um, as I'm going through the progression, as you're, you're talking about it being a learning designer, the most unique thing that has been able to develop as I become more um, savvy with tech and I understand the curriculum better and we're working on authentic projects, you know, with big companies uh, and all these different big groups is that I am starting to understand how little I know. And so I always kind of felt comfortable in these different environments, you know, playing the, you know, I'm the ex-pro or ex-athlete, you know, I don't really know what's going on. And so I can kind of fluidly move through these different environments. But as we get a reputation and it's kind of expected and that we operate to a high standard, as I've really started to understand that holistically, the student's well-being, regardless of what that, if it's mental, physical, emotional, in that, in that space. Um, space is literally the most important thing and often when we're talking about these they're more theoretical and I think the, the the best part about my program is I've shown how practical it is so if I can focus all my attention on building relationships with the students mm -hmm. uh, being kind and supporting them uh, and not necessarily through all STEM activities so it's not you know we're only doing STEM and that's how you're becoming confident but like the whole person themselves mm -hmm. then it doesn't really matter what I put in and so as we're developing you know amazing like we, we helped create a new plastic last year with our largest company and through that process it, it's less to do with that actual outcome and us working together and having an experience um, we had a group here this morning and they were asking, our, our students present quite a bit uh, at, at large uh, education conferences, a little bit of business ones, and then we do some actual professional development where they're, they're paid essentially, or I'm essentially paid, and, and then they come with me. And they're, we're, we're getting pretty well known for the students being of a very high um, uh, standard. And we were, I was talking this morning, I reflect a lot uh, about this, so I'm lucky to hopefully articulate this properly. We describe presenting together, it's usually three students and myself, as an experience that we share. And this is something that's like one moment in time that only we get to do together. Uh, and um, by changing the perspective of the actual presentation to us, you know, putting on this beautiful presentation and more of us sharing this awkward nervous <laughs> experience but we all know we're going through it together right then it really creates this different approach um the students take it extremely seriously but they've also i've noticed it's reduced a lot of the errors that they would traditionally do mm -hmm. i basically think they're they're thinking less uh less externally on the crowd and more internally um, and it, it, that's the one very specific, like sports related one. Where do they present? Do they present at conferences or in front of like their peers or, you know, adults or how does that happen? 
Yeah, a little bit of both. So we're lucky it's a tiny country. And so we would um, be invited to most like if there's a STEM event. So I, there's a, there was a national STEM uh, summit this year. So I was fortunate to be the chair. And then I brought three students. Um, within my program, I always have seven groups of three or 21 students to so 24, depending on the time, who are working on projects. So at each conference, we try and, 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 um, and to mix it up. But we also want students who have a very clear message. So that's the other thing is it's less presenting on our program. Our program is an example of, of whatever our message is. And then I re the students are the reinforcement of that. And then I speak to that. And so um, that STEM summit was a really good one where I brought three of my youngest students on purpose because uh, often people think that you know they're older students and they're the high performing students but uh -huh. my point is that any students can be in the program uh, and I brought two young um, girls and they spoke to uh, basically in a, in, in a summary was like uh, making jewelry is not going to cure cancer so if you mm -hmm. want them to be uh, uh, young women to join into STEM then you just need to give them purpose you don't That's need awesome. to girlify yeah. Yeah. So it was a really good message. It's and, really and cool. They brought it out themselves through reflection of the program. So it's no longer me having to prompt them. Mm -hmm. It's having a, a continual reflective program, which is they literally every day for the last 10 minutes, they have to do either a reflective game uh, or a written or a picture. And I, I would say that that's the most important part of the program. So basically you build relationships, you're doing some sort of STEM activity in the middle, and then you're reflecting on it as a group and very specifically. So not, you know, like we built a better robot uh, or when we talk about collaboration, we, we've stopped a lot of those words because what does that look like? So we want to unpack like what is that? What does collaborative language look like? And if you can start to slowly refine that, then your reflections are just completely reinforcing everything you're learning and making it all visible. Nick, one of the things that that I'm I'm very interested in because you were you were saying how you you and your wife were just traveling. Um, around and then you then you ended up there in in New Zealand. How how did your understanding of of culture of the New Zealand way of way of life of um, Maori life how how did that how did you come to learn this and um, when you when you first started teaching did you feel lost for the reason that you didn't know much or how did that um, how did that come about? Yeah, so when I first came to New Zealand, I, uh, I taught at a mainly Maori, almost entirely Maori school. And it is a cultural shock in some of the, it, it's less to do with the major things um, and more to do with, you know, different hairstyles or, you know, they, they got different jokes or I think scots was their, <laughs> their word for like really cool. And they, they had these like, like Dragon Ball Z type haircuts. But um, what's really lovely about New Zealand and one of the reasons we've stayed is that both the uh, um, uh, Pacifica and Maori communities, because we are the largest um, Pacifica city in, in the world, which is Auckland. Um, so it's quite a mix, you know, New Way and Tong and Cook Island, Samoa and all these different groups is that they're very welcoming. So as a, a white immigrant, what I, I really um, found um, comforting was as long as I was trying, uh, as long as I was making an effort, and I still don't pronounce many of the words uh, overly well, that um, you were given um, a, a, a certain amount of, um, of a pass to, to give things a go. And so for me, and I'm very curious, and it was a new culture that I tried to absorb it as quickly as I can. Um, I'm also pretty active still. So let's say, for example, like I played softball and I played in like an all Maori league. So it didn't take me very long to, to make a lot of connections and then I'm already out. And so th there's a term here called faka papa. And what that means is you're uh, um, at, the at the very superficial level, it's your ancestor. <laughs> so there could be, and it sounds funny because it's mm -hmm. close to a swear, but uh, <laughs> there's like a, a, a faka papa of the environment, or, or it could be just your lineage. But within the country, um, and when I'm dealing with other teachers, there's also that same faka papa for your engagement with the community. And um, to support, say, development with EWI or working with cultural groups. But uh, I'm trying to tell the, all, all these different um, uh, individuals that it's really your history that is going to support you. So when you, it's a small 
country, it's a small community. If you're trying and you're doing things out and you're um, being supportive of the students, then uh, the whole community is aware and very supportive. And that's when I think of Polynesian culture, that's exactly. The fano is uh, extremely important to everything that goes on. It's all family or community-based. And so as long as you're um, trying your best and you're respectful, then you're going to quickly gather community support. And I, and I think what's um, maybe uh, difficult or different for from a western perspective is that support isn't always going to be very um visible so it's not always having all the parents come into the school your community support may actually be uh things that you don't see and that parents are telling other members or you're giving support so for example um i know this one time it's a very long story but uh basically we had a poor interaction with our local council and during a council meeting, uh, so it had something to do specifically with me and, and a, a parks member. Um, basically, well, I didn't want to do this project that they were trying to, to force on us. And she went into a community meeting and basically described it differently. And multiple members uh, stood up and uh, supported us, but they never actually told me. And so I had to find out from a variety of other people. So they didn't want to. They didn't want to reward or incentive. They um, felt it was in their interest, and, and I think they were pretty clear um, along the lines of saying, you know. Um, this is where we stand with the school, and we—it's um, not to, to to even counter what the others were saying, but to support you. And that's uh, been a common theme. Uh, we all make mistakes, uh, and so um, I found that the Maori and Pacific community are highly supportive when they understand one your vision, w w why you're doing this, and two your history. And so your history uh, is your history of working with your community, regardless of what ethnic background they are. That's awesome, Nick. Um, you, you, you mentioned iwi. Can you um, can you tell us what, what 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 that is a little bit more? Yeah. So um, within New Zealand, you have uh, different iwi. It's basically so in Canada we would call it like a First Nations uh, tribe or band, uh, or American um, uh, Indian tribe or band would be the exact same thing. Uh, they are geographical here. Um, and so where our school is, we have one iwi who are amazing, Naitai. And so on our uh, area or our land that the school lies, um, they give us their um, cultural guidance. Uh, so Tikana, which is like your protocols, and then uh, also the local histories and knowledge. So they're all provided through um, R1 Iwi. Uh, and what that is, it's hugely um, advantageous, advantageous in that um, we have a source to go to um, and not every group has that. And so at previous schools, there's a little bit more of a blurry, blurred line or there could be three or four different iwi. But iwis uh, would start as the, the large tribe. And then traditionally, uh, you go down to what's called the hapu, which is more of your like family. So like, I guess my my iwi would be, you know, like uh, Gaelic or Celtic. And then my family would be Patterson or, or Donnelly. So it's, it's very similar. Um, it gets a little bit more tricky in that um, their their pop or their ancestry would always tie back to um, the canoe that they came in on. So like uh, um, Naitai came in on the Naitai um, canoe. And and so when you uh, do a formal welcome, uh, Hepiha, you actually acknowledge it goes, uh, I think, mountain, river, and then uh, the canoe that you came on. And there's different formats, but within each region, Arohi, um, there, there's different protocol. So like with our iwi, uh, it could be one mile to the left, uh, different iwi might do things completely differently. So what, what that's really allowed us to do um, is some very interesting things. The first one being we've been able to develop some very strong uh, place-based models around design thinking uh, and STEM in, in general. And so we, we've had some support from um, uh, some people from Stanford's uh, design school, specifically the K-12 lab, and then a, a fellow from the actual um, design school around how can you put design thinking into an indigenous context. And in this case, it's going to start uh, always with the land. So in like a really simple, um, superficial way, uh, the students, when you look at empathize, uh, they would empathize with the environment and the systems of the environment and how they interact before 
before they would even look at the users like needs or wants or motivations. And so that allows them to develop this tool that is um, indigenous at heart, but still applying and utilizing um, the, the power of design thinking, because we think that's very powerful. And so by being able to work so closely with my EWI and listening listening more than I talk, which is hard for me. Is that <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but starting to to mix these um, these uh, my Western ideas or or um, a Canadian ideas with some of the Kiwi or Maori ideas, and so I think the really cool part is that I'm still have know so little it's the same with teaching and i'm becoming very comfortable in that ambiguity or uh, in the uh, unknown and being able to um just learn from others and to share power and, and i hopefully saw some of that when you were here fred is this yeah, idea definitely. that um it's a shared power structure in the class um and there's a couple technical features one like i can't know all the tech so like i think the day you were here there's like vr ar they would have had drones they would have been doing a lot of technology um so i physically can't always be in charge of that but if you look holistically um at the students uh giving them the power to be an equal is quite um um core to them having this student agency and this actual belief that they can do um, some of these things and then building up that confidence. So if you shift all of your thinking around STEM, this is my personal bias, towards what's the best for this student, um, then it doesn't matter the activity or the STEM or the robot or whatever you're doing, but it also allows you to meet the individual needs of the student. So uh, within each group, we have three students and they're not all at the same level. Now, I have the same high expectations, but that may um, may actualize into different work. And so if you're focusing on how the students are doing and w what it is that their passion and how are they feeling and w where they're emotionally that day, then you can actually um, quite easily tailor the different learning experiences. So here we're very grade centric. And it sounds like the way that your class is organized, it's it's a process. It's, you know, just a community and it's very reflective. And like you said, you're really taking in those social emotional growth learning processes of each student. How do you evaluate and assess that? And do you even have to quantitatively like for, you know, district standards or, you know, like grades, things like that? Yeah, so, so our government loves those type of uh, um, uh, assessments uh, as well, and, and we do have them. Uh, so we have one for math, uh, literacy, well, reading, um, and, and then writing um, separately. Now, for the rest of our curriculum, it's up to us really how we go about measuring it and um, the progress or, or the achievement um, within our school. And so what we have currently is a badge system. So if you took all the criteria for everything other than literacy and numeracy, so for example, science at you know level two, you need to know four things specific an investigation and you need to you know use the data or, or whatever it is um, so from there those are called achievement objectives here and so AOs we call them we've taken all the AOs and attached them to a badge so basically our whole curriculum is in badges that are three different levels cool. and then from there yeah so the students are trying to collect the badges mm -hmm. um, as they go through the school so with each project you're, you're gathering this narrative assessment of what it is that you did and then from there you are um, presenting it to your uh, to, to your peers so we're in these they're kind of like homerooms um, uh, but they're more around your emotional and social uh, development so within those pods um, there's what's called badging uh, or badge pitching and so you'll say before your project I think I'm going to you know, I'm going to do art and these are the things I'm going to cover and within your project, anything can be steered towards the curriculum. That's where the learning designer uh, supports that. And then from there, um, you're going to pitch back and see if you've got it now. Um, very interesting. This was we we've been open for three years. And so this is uh, our first kind of um, uh, attempt at doing very innovative assessment and, and it's gone quite well. But within there, there are some things uh, specifically that I've been working on around. So that's all. It's basically a giant checklist. 
And by having the students perform uh, um, within and uh, present to each other and critique, there's a whole lot of um, uh, gold within that process. And, and it's an amazing process to hear the students have these deep conversations around you know, achievement and what does it look like and what it is from their perspective. But I think the next step that we've been working on, um, or the, the thing we've been working on is the next step, is that we're looking at these virtual um, environments. So let's just say, for example, uh, you're in a, a square room and there's nothing in there. How could you show your learning in such an authentic way that it could replace a, a resume? So we're trying to connect with real things. How can you do things so real that you're not just doing it for that moment, you're actually doing it for your life. And it could be finding purpose, it could be being a healthier person, but it wasn't just an assessment for that moment. And so this is something we've been doing these uh, mini design sprints and we've been playing around with it. And we think we're getting pretty close. We have a company uh, who, in Australia who's pretty keen to explore this further. They have uh, a generic kind of version of it. But what we were thinking, and this is where New Zealand will always be at the heart, uh, and Canada as well. But New Zealand specifically, where I've been so close with uh, our iwi and, and, and different indigenous groups, is how could you create this learning so that it wasn't just from one person's perspective? So if I go into this environment, instead of saying I know these AOs, could I scan a river from where I grew up? And could I explain some of my story from the land that I grew up in? Or could I do it from my ancestor's perspective? Or could I just experience some of these things within this uh, immersive environment? So when we first started to, de to design with the kids, if you could go into a room and capture all your learning, they naturally say, you know, here's a, vi here's a video, here's a TV and I can watch this performance. Or, you know, here's all the badges I got. But imagine you you were, um, let's say, a performance. I, I did a, a drama performance. So if we were able to use cameras to capture that in, in virtual reality, which we can. So imagine you now went into your actual performance with your fauna, your family, your teacher, and you could walk around through this. And instead of replaying the whole thing, we overlaid, quite simply, you reflecting. So now I can see the actual thing and I'm reflecting about what I felt and what went on in that moment. And so not are we just, are we just displaying the outcome, we're able to show the inner workings of that learning process. And so I think the next step, and OJC will definitely be uh, involved in this, but I'm going to explore it further in Australia, is how do I capture these learning experiences and put them into a place where others can experience it with me? And just by going through, that reflective process is enhanced. So I could reflect once. That doesn't mean if I went in there and I listened to myself again, I said, you know what, this is what I missed. And so imagine not only you're capturing this rich and meaningful learning, but the actual going back and experiencing it again is enhancing your reflections, enhancing your learning, you know, making more of those neural um, pathways just by physically going into it again. And I think that's the, the future of assessment. Um, and I think it's easier done um, than people believe. Uh, especially with new technologies. I think it's less to do with this fancy coding and really just yeah. have some sort of camera that captures it. So is this a, a philosophy of your entire school or is this kind of what you're doing, like you're trailblazing this? Uh, it's a little bit of, of both. Um, I'm very lucky to have a... Uh, a very strong intellectual management team and the, our management team is like large so we have like the three leaders of learning and then we have a supporting cast and so within there um, a lot of these ideas are developing as a group I'm very fortunate within my program to have a little bit more flexibility and how I actually apply things so once I have an idea I would apply it within my own setting and I have an immediate feedback loop that's you know very mm -hmm. quick and we have a lot of time with our students so about a third of our week so there's definitely a combination um, I'm I'm very lucky uh, so if you looked at, like if you broke down my program, because they do all these like crazy cool things, uh, like I said, it's about, you know, building relationships with the students. But I think the next thing is that um, it's 
building this understanding that they're able to do and actually enhance a lot of what I'm dealing with. So like I wanted to know more about uh, how we could capture learning to replace a CV. So we had to do this design sprint with a school. We They flew us down to Christchurch to do this design sprint. And so I just threw out that idea. And so that idea, the students came back with a whole bunch of different perspectives. And then I've been capturing that. So. Uh, it's definitely not me and that one, I'm getting a lot of these uh, um, inspiration from my peers, but that I'm then feeding it to the students who are refining it in ways that uh, I couldn't imagine. So where I I can be difficult sometimes, uh, and and it's funny because I don't know if you can see it like uh, this is voice recorded, but I often now visualize. So like I'm not on the spectrum or anything, but like I will look off often when I'm talking now Mm -hmm. because there's so much kind of going on in my mind and I'm visualizing it. Mm -hmm. And so they're always laughing at me here, but um, I think the students have played an immense role in there and the, because I'm doing less planning and organizing and all kind of the, the teachery things, and I've really focused on relationships, the payoff has been that I get more time to speak and spend with the students. So I now know them better, but I'm also getting quality actual interactions where I'm getting what not what they want me to, to believe or that they're, you know, um, trying to uh, gain kind of a, affection, but they're giving me their actual understanding of things. And I have enough time to, as I kind of zone off and visualize it, that they're getting enough time to process things and continually um, change their perspective and develop it. And so what you now have is like, I'll travel, I travel, I'm very lucky to travel all over the place. So I've you know, recently been to Israel, Hawaii, and I go to Tonga next week. So I go, I'm seeing all these things, I'm bouncing it off the ideas off my leadership team who are really amazing, super well-read, give me all these different uh, opinions, and then I can immediately take it to my students who will trial things out and give me a different um, feedback or perspective. The reason I bring them to conferences is so they can give their perspective. And that's something that's taken a long time. Like a, um, we had a conversation, uh, it was really it was random. I was like, stay awkward and weird. I was like, you know, <laughs> some of you are trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. Like, just be you because mm-hmm. that's what makes us successful. Mm-hmm. It's, if I had a whole bunch of super smart kids who did the exact same thing, then we wouldn't be us. So, you know, we're different levels, we're different races, we're different personalities. So, like, stay weird because, like, that's what I need. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was kind of this big talk we had. Um, and that's the whole point is I'm I'm the collection of a whole bunch of different people. So You know what, Nick? Oh, go ahead. Well, I mean, it, there's so much. I mean, like you said earlier, Fred, there's so much here that we want to unpack. And um, the thing that I wanted to just mention is that I think for teachers and especially new teachers, they feel the pressure of needing to have the curriculum developed and having the answers and knowing, being an expert and, um, you know, knowing what's going to be taught from day to day. And it sounds like um, you have like a general big picture idea and you are pretty comfortable with putting some bones together, giving it to your students and letting it see how it evolves and develops. And I was going to ask if you think that that's partly because when you started teaching science, you said you weren't very sciencey. And so you were already uncomfortable with just not already comfortable with not being an expert or if this is just maybe more your personality or teaching philosophy or if this is just something that's evolved over time. Yeah, so it's a little bit of all of those. So um, the first one uh, around curiosity, it's like I like learning with them. So that's a part of the process. So I I don't necessarily try and find out too much beforehand because I like to learn alongside my students. And that's part of the power base and uh, developing relationships and having them understand that we are more equals than than, um, they think. Now, with each project, so like I said, I have seven projects uh, roughly traditionally with uh, three students in each one. And I develop them for up to three to four months beforehand before they're given to the students and I actually have like a project recipe I can't remember it off the top of my head but it has to have it has to actually be achievable so I say this all the time in presentations I don't do climate change because if I thought it was achievable I would just do it myself 
You know, yeah. I'm not going to stress kids out giving them this huge problem that their generation didn't create and be like, okay, now we're going to, you know, cure climate change. Like if, if I thought it was possible, I would do it. So it has to have some sort of hope that they can actually achieve it has to make the world a better place, has to have some sort of a company or a group. We don't need funding. We just need someone who I can actually call. And then enact, uh, we try and spread out our technologies so it's not all like robots. Mm-hmm. So the, the irony is, it, I call it structure before the chaos. I have immensely project or uh, immensely complex projects. So within there, like creating the new plastic, or even they're creating an AI robot that can understand indig- indigenous languages and then respond. So like you would tell it to cool. you know, these things, and it would yeah. And it's meant to teach different dance. It's very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, they're actually doing the AI. So the irony is, in order to do that, there's all these unforeseen issues that are going to arise. So mm-hmm. I can't actually plan like I would want to. So when I first started teaching, you know, at 10.05, this is what was going on. But now, due to the complexities, all that I can do is create the environment for that to take place. So I would have the robots or access to funding or access to experts or the, the ability to have a space within the learning environment. We have a flexible learning environment so that they may need quiet to do recording. But the actual progress and the process, I can't dictate anymore. But all the planning going into it to get a really good project Mm -hmm. actually takes a lot of time. Yeah. And so what that looks like, and once again, I say this to everyone uh, and they just kind of laugh. So we get a lot of visitors. So they come in and they say, what's the core? I'm like relationships. And then, you know, students being happy and they're just like, what? And then they're like, how do you work with industry? Because we're heavily supported by kind of the top industry Mm -hmm. and people who traditionally wouldn't deal with, um, are you and how does that work and I'm like oh it's like have a bunch of coffees in the like they they it's the project but when you're dealing with anyone I personally feel what you're trying to do is to try to show them your heart why you're doing what you're doing and your vision and the projects naturally come out of that so a lot of time I'm meeting say with Ewe and there and I can't go into a meeting and be like Hey guys, I'm I'm a random person you don't know. Like, what are some problems my kids can solve for you? Like that, that's mm-hmm. common. So really, what I'm doing is I'm having these repeated conversations with people. I'm developing a relationship. Mm-hmm. Usually, it takes a couple months before they trust me, and they say, "Hey Nick, you know what? We have a whole bunch of ice cream containers that we want to turn into 3D printing filament. We don't have the time. Hey, can you give it a go?" And then it's me understanding that I know nothing about composite materials, especially plastics or polymers. So now I need to reach out to scientists. So that whole process fascinates me already. Like like I want to know how this works. And so I'm going and I'm talking to all these groups, but I can only know a superficial level. Like they start talking about atomic structure and and, and atomic memory. And it's just over my head. I'm just regurgitating, you know, what scientists told me. But now what I can do is align enough people that my students can do some of the research. When they get to the point, they have the support. Mm -hmm. And so, before the projects, lots of work. Yeah. When the projects are going on, almost none. I show mm-hmm. up. I uh, the, the the project groups are actually numbered for a variety of reasons. So if we enter a competition, you know, group one is is the robots. Group two is the AI. But that's the order that they come see me in. So I, I have a video um, of one of my lessons. So they're all the same. Uh, they laugh. Everyone shows up. There's about. 70 kids i give a five minute or no they're quiet for five minutes and they work on their uh learning journeys i give a five minute talk they call my old man talks about some life thing work hard you know (laughs) whatever it is my motivational speech yeah and then (laughs) they break up into their work groups my working group or integrity group sits in a circle they do an emotional check-in uh how they're feeling for the day and then they um uh, play a game any student who uh, doesn't isn't up to it for the day, um, this would be my kind of PBL pro tip, is we always have a side project, and it's traditionally an art one. So if a student's like, hey, you know what? I'm having a real bad day. It, we're together all day Wednesday. I just want to go do some painting. So they can opt out, and then they can go over and work on the project, either with their group or by themselves. And so now you can see there's all kind of these, these, these oh, levels. Okay. Yeah. And it, it's really good, and, and they're making puzzles for the primary school. So it's, it, it's not a, a busy work. It's just a, a work that they can do when they finish early or, or choose to. And so um, 
Yeah. So, so within the structure uh, of the class, what was it? I, I've gone off. What was the question again? <laughs> was it my question? Perfect, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, oh, I was just God, enjoying is, the whole thing. This is totally um, good. I love it. No, I was talking about just your design <laughs> process of the curriculum. If you just sort oh. of like kind of let it evolve that kind of thing. But I think you've, you've given me the yeah. answer throughout well, that. Mm -hmm. No, so, so, so I'll add to it briefly, sorry to cut you off, is that, so I sit once they're gone, this is what it was, and they come in and they're numbers. So they just come one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and we have a conversation and then they leave. So I don't have to do any more planning because when you come up as a group, all I do is ask questions. So that's the other thing. We have this whole culture of thinking. And so they, they're, they use the same language, but like, I just ask questions. So now I don't need to know what you did yesterday because I'm going to find out again and then I can check it in your reflection that evening. So now all I'm looking at is a conversation and your reflection. So these students um, that are working on these projects, they choose the projects that they want to work on or they are, they're assigned by you or how does that come about? They have like five different projects happening all at once. Like you've written five different curriculums for five different projects. No, so um, first off, there are levels uh, seven years, seven to 10. So it's 11 to 14. So they're at different uh, ages already. Mm -hmm. um, so they opt into, a whole school gets put into project teams. So it's like team teaching within a space. Ah. Ours is different in that um, I'm obviously always in the accelerator, which is called, and it has a bunch of funding from industry and different groups. So there's already a pot of money. I um, develop seven to eight projects each uh, round, about 15 weeks. And that's really the core of what I do. So I'm building a project. The students opt into um, to my, my project or projects team. Mm -hmm. And then from there on day one, they write a resume and they apply for one of the projects. Then everyone is interviewed and then I split them up. So there's key moments in what I do and learning the STEM or the robots is definitely not one of them. The main thing is putting them into groups that will work well because they're always in a groups of three. And so my whole job as learning facilitator is really facilitating the relationships and the collaborative norms and the abilities to work. So one of the things we have almost entirely eliminated from our environment is this idea of like Jimmy not doing any work or Sally yep. does it all because while I'm talking to the groups, I'm really watching everyone yeah. to see how they're working. Every day they get to write a reflection to me personally, and I'm the only one who sees it. It's these huge documents or they draw a picture or whatnot. And it's really key at the beginning. Like I said, you have to have structure before the chaos is I check all of them every night. So if Fred was having issues with someone in your um, group, uh, then you would put it in your reflection and I would deal with it immediately. So um, one of the things they all know is that there's a huge trans transparency to how everything works. So I see you every day. I know exactly what you're going, what you're supposed to do, and if you've done it. And then if someone was uh, personally wanted to go further in the reflection, they could do that as well. So if you had a bad day, you didn't do any work. Maybe I look in your reflection and you're sad, or or whatever it is uh, came about. So there's a huge transparency which keeps everyone um, kind of to account. But then on the other hand, I don't really have to micromanage. So, mm -hmm. for example, I had a guest today and I left them for essentially the whole block uh, and they did all of their work and we're very happy, um, you know, to, to have their freedom. But they already have it regardless. So like when you were there, Fred, lots of them are off. They're doing their own thing because um, it's part of our cultural norms. You, you know, and, and that was that was one of the things I was I was going to um, get back to, Nick. One of the things that that interests me is that um, I've I've overheard a lot of a lot of teachers here say that well, low SES kids can't do because of blah 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 blah. Um, obviously, that's not true because here you are, and and there's and there's a lot of really great teachers around the around the U.S. doing doing a lot of really great great things within low low SES schools. Um, how? And and it and it seems like you've you really focus on that relationship first, and then it's the work second. Um, and how would you 
you know, what what would be your recommendation for for teachers for brand new teachers who are who are going into low low SES schools, thinking that well, it's a it's a low SES school, so you know my students aren't going to be able to learn as as much as like a high SES school. Yeah, I think the exact same as it is for students. Building their confidence has to be done through real action. And I think for teachers, uh, another thing um, that I'm very fortunate over my career now, I have a real deep belief in my students. And you can't fake that because your language, the challenges you give them, the way that you approach them, everyone knows if it's real or it's not. And so I think the, the teachers really have to experience that. But I'll throw out something here. And eventually, hopefully one day I'll have enough control to do this. But this will be a perfect example of kind of the systems of school and what I would recommend to a teacher. So I don't know why we have lunch. I don't know why you can't eat when you're hungry. And when I taught in the lowest decile school, yes. I literally just put food out. I said food out. And we had one of the highest tech. There was a period where I had this one class that was the most tech heavy class I've ever been in. I got a whole bunch of funding. So I bought everyone a Chromebook. And then I was like, you know, they need a tablet too. And so I bought everyone, like we had so much stuff. A couple of things came out of that. One, we only used a little bit of tech because it came too much. But the other thing was I left a whole bunch of food in the front of the classroom and a whole bunch of milk in the back. And I literally said, you eat when you eat. If you make a mess, you clean it up. Now, the irony is in our big, fancy environment right now, we have issues around rubbish. And that's because you're, you're forcing everyone to have this food at this one time, right, in one place, and it's very hard to understand. Like, who, who did what? You know, what did that look like? <laughs> but in my primary, if you wanted to eat, you could eat at any time, but it was very transparent. Everyone could see Jimmy's having a milk, and Jimmy spilled the milk. Uh, I think the only other rule is you couldn't, you couldn't have milk with a computer, you could eat with a computer. And I think the very good example well, that I'm trying to say this is you don't have to sacrifice always to put the students' needs first. Now, I, I think often as teachers, we're so loving. There's this belief, you know, I have to do all this marking and I have to stay after school and do all these, like, all these things that are taking away from my emotional and physical ability to do my job when there's simple systems that will just make your life easier. And, and I think that's one. If you, if you looked at what is the core thing my students need to function today, not learn, to just be happy and 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 to just like like life what would that look like and and on one of your questions was um and it made me smile when i saw it was like if you could do anything in, in education um like what would it, if i could wave my wand and i would just make every kid happy and healthy that's like literally it and then i'm pretty sure i'd have like the most amazing stem program ever because you know they could they would just be wanting to learn. Everyone naturally wants to learn. Something is in place that is preventing that. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of lower socioeconomic kids, they're physically hungry and sleep and trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how to cure all of it, but like feed them. <laughs> That's what I would do first. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Uh Hey, hey, Nick. How's that? How's that one one group doing? Who's who's making that um, heart rate monitor? Yeah, so they're doing really well. There's one boy who's going to join because we, we like to take a set of girls uh, and a set of boys, but they're going to Tonga on Wednesday. Um, they'll be doing a design sprint with a company on Monday to prepare. Um, but they're a really good example of a group of students, uh, and um, uh, they'd be well aware. I've said this before, so I kind of say it behind their back, but they weren't the most confident group. And there was one moment, and this is where I'm talking about with uh, actions, that really, really showed them how much confidence I had. And so we were doing a uh, paid professional development uh, activity around artificial intelligence, and they were running part of the workshop. And then I had to take another trip. Um, so I was out of Auckland, and I literally said, you know what, like, I think you could just do it. Just do it without me. And it was very, very scary for them. Uh, and it took a lot of prep. We had some time, but they did it. And I think for that, regardless of how you know smooth or polished it was in front of the teachers, I truly believing in students 
unlocks a lot from them. And I, I think that was a moment for them where they were like, Nick really believes in us because we talk a lot. Um, and there's some other things, you know, that not uh, every teacher would probably love. We we have this reinforcement of, you know, trying to always achieve excellence. And so we often talk about trying to be the best in the world. And so um, this is something we're constantly reinforcing. We want, we call it like a STEM swagger. Like we don't want them arrogant, but we want them going into every situation with a complete confidence that like, I can do this. And the only thing, even if I make a mistake, this is part of like my process. So the irony being we, we win lots of things and we're really good at kind of all these different comps and stuff, but we could care less about them. And it's the same with the presentations. It's about our experience, about actually being hungry towards learning and making the world a better place. Doesn't happen when you win some kid's robot comp. And so that is just another opportunity for us to develop, have some stress to, to, to improve ourselves. And I and think- what's, oh, I'm sorry, I, I think what's- no, no, you go. And I think what's, what's important for, for, the, for the listeners to also know is that these are, these are kids that are also working with um, people like scientists engineers and so so they're so they're working with 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 corporate people in order to make a lot of these things like this like this heart rate monitor yeah for sure for sure and we're very lucky because new zealand's a small country and so we we've had what i call a, a series of, of um, wins and this is the same thing i develop with students the confidence is built over a series of wins so you're just trying to get all these little actual things they do is that we are um and i think in a unique position that we're respected by industry and so enough that um i can bring students to a meeting and it's not going to be shocking it's just going to be you know nick's a little bit out there and this is kind of what he does and so it started with presentations and now it's meetings and now the students are doing a bunch of work that people wouldn't have thought of before um with the idea that their perspective is actually commercially like tangibly beneficial but by training them up we don't need to so having the students do a design sprint or, or doing a workshop it, so much is in there but we're creating all these programs to you know build leadership and build confidence when literally them just doing some of these daily things are the goal that that's how we can do it so if you imagine students doing more teaching of other teachers like like I would love to know some of their perspectives um, in my math class. Like I have a pretty good idea, but I haven't been able to build the same relationships as in the projects. Mm -hmm. And so those are things that could actually help my teaching. Um, yeah, we have uh, to kind of elaborate. We have two. We have a group that wrote an article. Uh, so here, though, though, I'll get in asked to write an article on say like uh, one we went to Hawaii it's a you know a really uh, amazing project we put a, a artificial um, or AI camera into a ancient Hawaiian fish pond so it's like uh, wonderful on many levels and so I got asked to write an article on it and this time I got my students to write it and I was a little bit nervous because we talk about this was the point a reputation right this is belief that you know we we're always doing well we're always winning you know we're always and so I a little bit nervous I'll admit and once again the students did like an amazing job so then I said, you know, I'm going to jump a little bit further outside of my comfort zone. And there's one uh, girl, um, uh, Celine, and she writes these beautiful reflections. They're just so witty and hilarious. And I said, you know what? I got another article I got to write, and it's for uh, a computer magazine. They're not overly kind of entertaining generally. It's a good magazine. Um, do you want to take a shot at writing like a Celine article? So this is what I was saying, like, stay weird. You're not doing one that you think I'm going to like. I want a Celine article on some robot computer nerd stuff. Like, we'll give it a go. And so she did, uh, of course, she did an amazing job. And so they've asked if we would write um, two more articles for next year. And so she's mentoring uh, two more students to go through the process. And that's the other thing is now the presentations and all these things, they're going on. So you can see by her having that role, one, to be honest, it frees me up with heaps of stuff. Planning-wise, I don't need to know anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I just need to check on how they're working. Uh, but it gives her an actual role, and she's, like, taking it so serious. It's, like, super cute. And then they'll write their their articles. 
but one of them is on teacher reflection. So we're using the software. I won't bore you with the whole thing. But the idea of where do students come into my personal professional reflection? And so they use this metaphor of like sitting at a lake and seeing a reflection. But on the other side, it's completely different. So you're, you, it's, it's seeing your total 360. And so like now it's just showing that if you can bring them into everything, and it's uncomfortable at first, I, like I'll admit, it's uncomfortable having students at meetings. It's uncomfortable really hearing what they, because it's not always positive, right? Mm-hmm. And, but once you're developing that, and then now they even know how to give proper feedback. So they'll come into a meeting and, and they'll be able to say some pretty negative things, but they understand like we should be kind in here and, and the critique has to be very specific to what we need. Um, that first article on Hawaii, and this is one of the very few pet peeves I have with other teachers, uh, but this is one for sure. So these two girls wrote this amazing article on the Polynesian connection between New Zealand and Hawaii. So we're using how we did wayfinding and all the tech, but it was about two Polynesian communities coming together and the young leaders taking over the learning. So it's very much kind of everything I've said from their perspective. And it was just beautiful how like they want to make the world a better place and they're doing it by reaching out. And I I show some of those things to uh, other people. And often the the first thing we naturally go to is like spelling mistakes or, you know, like grammar or whatnot. And And I think that's also appreciating the beauty of what the students have done, regardless of how polished it is, and knowing that it's going to get polished. I think my, my response to, to, to the one, um, the person who pointed it out uh, was like, it goes to a professional editor, and we only have so much time, and you know, of course we want the students to, to continue as much as possible, but I think, my, my, and, my, and I said it in these um, exact words, but it's the beauty of what they did, that they got their message out, and it was crude because they're little kids, and I think that's their part is remembering. So when we go to a presentation, the irony is the students never really make mistakes, knock on wood, they haven't yet. But we're only talking about the message. So when you give a presentation, uh, and this is where it's really interesting, often you, you're memorizing whatever your lines are. So, so we've gone completely away from that and that we call it a mic drop. All they need to know is their message. Why are we here? What is your message? And then if you backtrack from there, like those girls with the you know jewelry isn't gonna cure cancer, all they did was put in slides that had to support that evidence. And then when they're doing these presentations, it's, it's less to do with this pedantic reading of words and it's telling my story. And I think that's the beauty is even if they made a mistake in there, they're not going to completely melt down because some of these conferences, you're talking like, like hundreds and hundreds of people, they're just telling their story. So now you're just building up the confidence for them to tell their story. They're not really doing a presentation. It just happens to be in front of others. And right. so they don't need to memorize things. They can be very relaxed. Any member can jump in at any time because it's the group's story. And I think that that's, that was all, I guess I should have rephrased it. It's not a pet peeve, but I think we need to take the opportunity sometimes, even in failure, even in poor, uh, traditionally want, you know, like a beautiful bridge or, you know, a perfect working car and to understand that each student's on their own journey and that by celebrating that, you're just supporting it. And, and I think that's where with a lot of what the students are doing, when you can really believe in them and understand that they're all going to kind of be on their own pace and be good with that. And I think the, uh, to add to it is I don't really know what I teach them. And when I've, I've become comfortable in that. So like I can test bits of what I teach them. It's probably like minute compared to it. So if I know that I'm not really, I can't really measure what I'm teaching them, I don't really know what they're learning, then I'm not so forced into a curriculum that's one, two, three, because I don't really know if they're learning it anyways. And the people who tell me they are, are lying, because I, I, I'm you know, well read on uh, assessment, <laughs> and you just can't. So, yeah. so I think that's that weird, it's, it's a weird feeling of, of not knowing but just understanding that it's it's an ongoing mess that we experience together, and then that's the learning, and and yeah. can't really be written down on a test. One of the things, Nick, in which we would we would wish to offer you is just just at you and and your students is that open invitation. Um, since we since we are going to be starting our our new online academic academic journal that's that's opened up for for teachers, but also but also. Um, um, students that want to 
write about what they're what they're working on. So I highly invite all of you to write for it. Oh, no, thank you for the invitation. We are definitely we've already started. So I, I should have uh, emailed you formally. Um, they started. <laughs> Uh, we just have some questions around, uh, which I'll ask later around, um, like length and, and the technical okay, thing. Sure. We would love, and I love the idea of um, students collaborating internationally. Um, so I, I think you're doing amazing things there with the journal because it is quite important that um, students have more authentic uh, literacy opportunities that are authentic, mm -hmm. not just you know replicating what you think is authentic. Correct. Awesome. Nick, you, I mean, we could talk to you for hours, but you know, we want to be respectful of your time and our listeners time. But, uh, one thing that we like to end on is sort of, um, what we call our call to action or our takeaway. So you've given us many little golden nuggets for teachers to do to, you know, take away, bring into their own practice. If you could just sum it up in maybe one, just one thing, what, um, what would be your advice to teachers who want to start to teach in this way? <laughs> yeah, I think the most important thing to teaching is the student's health and building relationships between the students, their peers, and yourself so that they're starting to develop a purpose and an understanding of why they come to school. And from there, you can introduce any type of learning in order for them to flourish. I do think that STEM gives them the technology and the literacies to be able to harness those mm -hmm. in order to make the world a better place. Awesome. Thank you Thanks, so man. much. We're likely going to want to have you on again. Um, probably talking about more projects and things that you do. So we'll probably be in touch again soon. but. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, I'm excited to listen to this again because there's so much in here that I am excited about. So thank you. That's right. No, no, thank you. Sorry, I'm all over the place. Um, and I would love to, you know, any anytime. Um, if there was another opportunity, you could mm -hmm. probably guess uh, I would love to come on with uh, a student or two. Yes, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Next time we'll ask you to bring a student. That'd be super cool to have them talk about some projects that they're working on. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again. And Fred, I'll set up another time to Skype because I just want to chat in general. All right, man. Awesome. Cool. It was nice to meet you, Nick. Have a great day. Thanks, Nick. Likewise. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.